time to get into God's Word. Amen? All right, well, if you would turn with me to James chapter 4. We're going to be looking at two verses today. And so uh, for that reason, we'll spend a little bit more time kind of recapping last week and uh, in our introduction today, but it's some, uh, definitely some great couple of verses, verses 11 and 12 specifically, which we will uh, we'll get there in a few. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we love your word, and that's uh, something that we express week after week. That's why we gather around your word, and uh, we really believe that this is your inspired revelation of yourself to us. It communicates everything that we need for life, for eternal life, for godly living. In it, we find hope, we find truth, helps us to understand much about ourselves, God, and the predicament that we are in outside of Christ our separation from you and our sin, but it also reveals to us your glorious gift of salvation and how we can be reconciled to you, how we can live a life that pleases you and is fruitful and effective for your kingdom, and it also gives us hope for the future as we understand to some degree what glory awaits us. And so I thank you, Father, for the book of James. Thank you for how very simple and practical yet challenging and convicting that it is. Thank you that your word is absolutely relevant. Even today, Lord, 2,000 years later, God, it is just as relevant, if not more so. And so we thank you, God. We ask that you would please speak to us through your word today. Father, would you use me to minister to your people, that I would speak accurately and I would speak clearly, and I would speak with conviction and speak with relevance and application, and that uh, you would be pleased, oh God, to bless your people and that we would bring you honor and glory today. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So you will recall that the theme of this book is what? I've said it a few times now. What's that? Be a doer of the word. Amen. That's what he says in chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. If you are a hearer and not a doer, then you deceive yourselves, is what James says. And so James has been spending a lot of time just dealing with practical issues, practical matters. What then does it look like to be a doer of the word? Well, there's a lot. There's a lot that can be said about it. And James has already spent quite a bit of time dealing with speech. And the speech, our speech, is such a a critical issue because with our words, we can speak words of life and encouragement. We can communicate the glories and the love of Jesus. We can build people up and bless people and teach people. There's so many wonderful things that we can do with our speech, but there's so much destruction that we can do. We can hurt people, we can lead people astray and deceive people, we can bring reproach on the name of Christ by our speech, we can soil our testimony, it's just, uh, it can be a weapon of devastation. And so James says, be very careful. We can be hypocritical with our speech, we can profess one thing, and we can bless God and praise His holy name and then turn around and just cut people to smithereens. I remember my grandma years ago. Now, she, my grandma was, I don't know how to put this. I mean, she was just a redneck. And um, 
I remember like when she was, she smoked till the day she died, and the, every time she'd have to go to the doctor for some ailment, that would always come up. And I remember her telling me that the doctor was really giving her a hard time for smoking. And she said, as soon as you get done preaching, I'm going to pass a collection plate. And so that was my grandma, you know. Well, she was picking up my, my she didn't go to church, but my dad went to church where it was, uh, I mean, it was a, a lot of people, like 8,000 people. So it was just pandemonium in the parking lot. They actually had to have the police there to guide traffic and all that. So my grandma was there. She was picking up my dad. She was upset. And already because of the traffic and there was a, a, an officer there directing her one way and she wanted to go the other way and my grandma let out a cuss word and the police officer said way to go church lady and oh she was smoking hot because you know what she ain't no church lady and she let the cop know that and so anyways we can you know people we can be perceived one way and then our speech can just absolutely communicate another thing and so uh, we got to be careful with that. And so James starts the theme of our speech in chapter 1, verse 26. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle, doesn't control his own tongue, he deceives his heart, and that person's religion is worthless, worthless. And then in James chapter 3, he spends 12 verses dealing with the issue of taming the tongue. And just how poisonous the tongue can be, and how much destruction and devastation our speech can bring about. And then as he moves into chapter 4, the chapter that we are currently in, he kind of opens the chapter by asking the question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And so already now he's dealing with the issue of quarreling and fighting in the church, in the church. So he's kind of continuing on with this issue of speech, speech amongst the believers. And he deals not only with the external issues of speech and arguing and quarreling, but he goes to the source of the issue, the, the, the source, the heart of the matter, James says. He asks, you know, what, you know, what is the reason, what's the, the, what is the reason for the quarreling? And then he says it's envy. It's self-seeking, it's unfulfilled lust at war within us. So this is the kind of stuff that can happen in the church. We can be self-seeking, envious, uh, arrogant, uh, and we can begin to be quarrelsome. I mean, this, this is not true of this church. We're about, we, you know, we don't have to worry about this. But, you know, the heart is wicked, and it can happen. It could happen to us. And not only in the church, but wherever we are in life. You know, our hearts are, are desperately wicked and sick, the Bible says. And who can even know it? Who can know how bad it actually is? We can't. We can't know. And so we have to be on guard for that. And uh, I've heard stories about other churches that do have issues with slander and quarreling and strife. And, uh, you know, it some of the silliest things. I've to told this story before. I've heard of a church split over a portrait, a, a painting of Adam and Eve. They had belly buttons, and some people took issue with that. You know, they weren't born. They were created. They couldn't have had belly buttons. And there were other people that were very, like, you know, very, yes, they did, and the picture stays, and the church split, you know. And so, 
Uh, that kind of stuff can happen. And so James, he hits this head on. And what he equates this to, what he says this ultimately boils down to, it's worldliness. He says it's worldliness. What is worldliness? John tells us it's the lust of the flesh, it is the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's our desires, uh, desire for pleasure, it's our desire to accumulate worldly wealth and creature comforts and security, and it's, it's a desire for status and recognition. Those are worldly things. And James says that's really what's at the center of all of this behavior happening in the church. All the strife, all the quarreling, the arguing, the fights, the wars within you, it all results in worldly behavior. And then he says, God is jealous. Remember that? He said he, he yearns jealously. And what it, what's, what's he trying to say there? He's saying that God wants our affection. He wants our devotion. He wants our loyalty. And James says friendship with the world is enmity with God. So, a church that is worldly, a church that is full of this kind of, this heart posture and that kind of behavior, that is worldliness, and God is not okay with that. And so, James says that uh, the, the solution to that is humility. Submit to God humble ourselves, and then God will exalt us. It says that if we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. James says to resist the devil and he will flee. See, that's what Satan wants. He wants a church full of worldly people that are fighting, who are full of envy and contention and strife and jealousy and boastful arrogance because he can't take our salvation, but he can render us ineffective. He can damage our testimony, use us to bring reproach on the name of Christ. And so that's what Satan wants. That's what he wants to do. And so James says, look, you, you, that cannot be. You have to resist Satan. You have to draw near to God. You have to humble yourselves, repent of your worldliness, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He says, why? Because God opposes the proud, but what? gives grace to the humble. So for a humble church, a church that draws near to God, humbles ourselves before Him, resists the enemy, we fight against the, the tendency of, of uh, you know, jealousy, envy, strife, whatever it is that may be creeping up in our hearts, there is grace. Grace abounds. We have the grace that we need to walk in the ways that please God and build up the church. So that really is kind of an overview of what we talked about last week in a nutshell. But it essentially kind of continues on today in our text. He continues to talk about the issue of ungodly speech. More specifically, he's going to deal with the issue of judgmentalism. Judgmental, uh, judgmentalism that results in slander and defamation. That's ultimately what we're talking about. And James just asks this very piercing question at the end of verse 12. He says, who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? Now, that should sound familiar to us. As I had mentioned before, there's several, um, there's several quotes or allusions to the Sermon on the Mount in this book, and this would probably be one of them. And we all know the verse, judge not lest you be judged. You heard that before? That, the world loves that verse. I mean, the whole world. There are certain verses that everybody knows. 
uh, certain passages that everybody knows. Uh, Psalm 23, the whole world loves that. Uh, but I would say this one even trumps that. Judge not. Because what people think that is, is Jesus himself making it clear that we're not allowed to ever call anybody into question for anything. Don't judge me. Judge not lest you be judged. And then we want to judge right back. Oh, yeah, well, how about you? And how about this? And how about that? Don't judge me. But that's not at all what Jesus meant, and that's not at all what James is getting at. You know, the reality is we are all called to make assessments. We are all called to make evaluations. Jesus, talking about false teachers and wolves, he said, how are you going to know them? You're going to know them by their fruit. That's how you're going to know. They're going to say one thing, but you're going to see the way that they live their lives. And that's going to tell you everything. My pastor in South Carolina used to always say, listen with your eyes. Listen with your eyes. Watch people's lives, and you're going to really see if there's a consistency between what they say and what they believe and how they live. And so, of course, we are called to make judgments, if you will. And we're also called to hold each other accountable, okay? So, we are not to be the, the Holy Spirit, okay? I'm not your Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit, and He's quite capable of doing much more than myself, and we're not sin sniffers, okay? We're not going around all the time trying to catch people in sin so that we can blast them, right, or gossip about it. That's not what we're doing. We're not, we're not the Holy Spirit police. But we are called to love one another and, and hold one another accountable. So if you see something in my life, if you see something that seems very inconsistent, you know, in love, you're going to say something to me because oftentimes we don't see it in ourselves. We have blind spots. And so part of the, the good gift of God that He's given us is each other. And we're called to hold one another up, encourage one another, and even challenge one another at times. And I praise God for godly brothers and sisters who have called me when I needed it. Amen? And so, this is not a pass just to do whatever you want, whenever you want, and then say, judge not, don't judge me, right? And so, I just want to make that very clear. What is it exactly that James is talking about, and Jesus, I would say, and that is falsely assuming someone's motives. Falsely assuming someone's motives and then attacking their character because of it. Um, standing in judgment of somebody, it's elevating yourself to a higher place. Uh, with that can come pride. I would never do that. I can't believe you would do that. I know why you would do that. See, that's, that's kind of being the judge, if you will. And so, from this text, we're going to see four reasons why we must not falsely judge, really why we must not slander, why we must not defame our brothers and sisters, why we must not assume their motives. We must not. Who are we to do such a thing? And that's the very question that James asks. And so, as I said, two verses, um, four points that we will draw out. I'll uh, read these two verses to us now. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, chapter 4, verse 11, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. 
The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? That is God's Word. All right, so with that, let's go ahead and consider the first part of verse 11. And if you're taking notes, uh, point one, when we slander, we defame our brother and sister in Christ. It's a very simple observation. It might be easy to miss. He says there, do not speak evil against one another, brothers and Some translations would interpret that brothers and sisters. It's uh, plural in the Greek, adelphoi. I think that's proper. And so this applies to all of us in here, obviously, not just the men, brothers and sisters alike, the church, the body of Christ. He says, do not speak evil against one another. And so this, I think, makes clear that it is an issue of slander and defamation because he says you're speaking evil. You're saying things that you ought not say about your brother and sister, and that's not good. Now, we see an example of this in the Old Testament, right in the Bible, perfect example. David, his uh, older brothers had been called out to war against the Philistines. You remember Goliath issued this challenge that uh, they could bring one of their best warriors, and, and he would challenge them and Whoever wins, the army would have to surrender to the other army. And so there, the encampments are set out there. And then David was the only sibling who was back at, the, at his home watching his father's sheep. So his father sent him to the, to the encampment to bring some cheese and some bread and some parched grain and uh, to essentially get word of what's going on there and bring it back to his dad. So he does, and he gets there, and he hears catches wind of what had happened with the challenge that Goliath issued, and he's like, who does this guy think he is? And, you know, he's just getting fired up for, for God's glory. And then one of David's brothers says this in verse, chapter 17, verse 28, now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Now, is that true? No, it's not. His dad sent him. He was there watching the sheep. His dad sent him to the battle for a reason. So Eliab was totally wrong. Was he convinced that he was totally right? Yes. And you know what? He was probably you know, embarrassed. He was probably humiliated because they were cowering in fear against the Philistines. And so in their own cowardice, when his brother comes and finds out what's going on, he attacks him, right? Don't you think? Well, you know what? I just judged Eliab's heart. I don't know what was going on in Eliab, but you see how easy it is to turn it around? Oh yeah, I know what. You know what? You're just a coward. You're scared. You're afraid to fight their champion. That's what's wrong with you. So you see how easily we can turn that around? Because I thought that same thing. And I was like, wait a minute. I just judged Eliab's heart. 
And I said, that is what we do. That's exactly what we do. And I think that's what James is essentially getting at. He's like, man, watch out. Watch out. It is easy to attack. It is easy to assume. It is easy to think that we know what's really going on. And I would just say that even, if, even maybe not even in that situation necessarily, it's just easy to attack. When, when somebody says something to us that we don't like, our first response is not typically, let me give that some thought. You could be right. I'll think that over and get back to you. No, it's not, is it? And she's like, oh, yeah, well, you, you, uh, you do this when you, and I'm, you know, speaking for myself here, week after week after week. I'm in a vulnerable position up here, you know, and uh, it's, it's just easy to do, easy to do. And so we got to watch that. We have to watch that. Now, he says, speak no evil against your brother. So that makes, I think, clear to us that he's, he's talking about defamation. He's not, you know, talking about holding someone accountable or addressing a sin issue in their life. It's talking smack. And he says, don't do that to your brothers, to your sisters. This is not just a generic command. This is very specific. This is very intentional. And he says not to do it to one another. We are not to speak evil against one another. Now, that's a, that's a very significant little phrase, one another. The Bible has what we call the one another commands of Christ. That phrase, one another, it's one Greek word, but it's used about a hundred times in the New Testament, and about half of those times deals with Christian conduct one to another. And there are many of them, and I just have a handful of them here that I will bring to our attention over and over, the Bible says, Jesus says, love one another. Pray for one another. That's in the book of James. Confess our sins to one another. That also is in the book of James. Serve one another. Speak truth to one another. Show hospitality to one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another encourage and build up one another, stir up one another to love and good works, talk trash about another behind one another's back. <laughs> you see how that doesn't fit? The Bible just paints this beautiful picture for us of what Christian community ought to look like. It looks a lot like Christ, okay? And it's very clear that there should be an environment of forgiveness, of truthfulness, of serving one another, praying for one another, caring for one another, stirring one another up, encouraging one another, building one another up, not talking trash, not falsely assuming motives, not slandering people, not tearing people down. Amen? We are brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. We are fellow recipients of mercy. You have received mercy. I have received mercy. As a recipient of mercy, how can I then turn around and judge you? How can I falsely assume and attack your character? I'm not the judge. Man, my, my debt has been forgiven. My debt has been paid. The judge slammed the gavel and said, justified, innocent, guiltless. Okay, and praise God for that. So how then can I turn around to a brother and sister and attack? 
slanderize. That's not a word, but in the South it is. And I was, I was teaching a Bible study, and I was like, low down, slanderizing. And this guy came up to me. He was, he was um, not a Southerner, and he's like, slanderize is not a word. And I was like, dang, I thought it was. It's not. No place for that in the church, amen? Well, that brings us to point two. When we slander, we violate the law of love and liberty. We violate the law of love and liberty. Look with me at the second part of verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, this can be a very confusing verse at first glance, and it takes a little bit of uh, understanding. I noticed that people, you know, that I had kind of looked to to gain some understanding from this all admitted that it definitely took a minute to try to wrap their, their heads around this. It, the first thing that I hear with this is like, well, we're supposed to keep the law. The Bible is crystal clear that we are not under the law. We're under grace. We're led by the Spirit. What does he mean here? Well, let, let's just take a quick step back. This is good. We need to understand this as, as those in the church age and the new covenant under grace, we need to understand the, the place of the law and maybe what is it exactly that James is talking about here. So first off, when God called his people out of Egypt, now they had been in Egyptian bondage for 400 years, harsh bondage. And they had been immersed in the Egyptian culture, which was thoroughly pagan. And they worshipped many different kinds of gods, gross immorality and pagan idolatry. So when God called His people out of there, they needed to be distinct. There was one God, no other God but Yahweh. And He did not want His people to look like the Egyptians. And how could they not look like the Egyptians when they had been there for 400 years? So God gave them His law. And in his law, he dealt with ceremonial issues. There were civil issues. How do we conduct ourselves lawfully? Um, he dealt with dietary issues, moral issues. All of that was in there. And it was the law that made the people very distinct. And the law reflected God's holiness. It reflected God's heart. It reflected God. And so the law is good, and the law was very beneficial to God's people, Israel, and they were governed by this law for a long time. But ultimately, the big picture here is that the law shows us that we're lawbreakers. We can't keep the law. We can't. And so it brings us to a place that, of realizing, gosh, we, I need a Savior. I need a Savior. Because I have transgressed God's good and holy law, and I'm accountable as such. What am I going to do? Well, the good news is God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill the law. He fulfilled it to the T. He lived a perfect life and perfect obedience to every point of the law. He's the only one who could ever do that as the God-man. But then He also suffered the consequences of the law of sin on Himself. He took the penalty and the punishment for the broken law that the laws that we broke. So he suffered God's righteous wrath on the cross in our place. So the innocent for the guilty, the just for the unjust, that we would receive his righteousness and his goodness. 
and we would receive the free gift of salvation through faith. So that, in a nutshell, is the purpose of the law. But because Christ has fulfilled the law, we're not under the law anymore. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there are certainly principles from the law that transcend. It was a sin to murder then. It was a sin to covet one's neighbor's wife then. It was a a sin to steal then. It, It still is now. Okay, so those things are still there, and we are still called to live a life of holiness. And James makes clear that we are to obey the law. But what law is it that James is talking about specifically? Well, I think that we've already seen that it's what James refers to as the law of liberty in chapter 1. What is that? It's the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? Liberty. There's freedom. And the royal law of love, I think, Pastor Dan, you covered that. What is the royal law of love? Was to love God. Well, of our, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as ourselves, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I think James gives us a hint about that in the latter part of um, verse 12. When he says, who are you to judge your neighbor? Okay, so James says, look, we are under the royal law of love. Okay, that's the law that we are to be about. We are to love God and we are to love others. And so if we talk trash about one another, if we slander one another, if we defame one another, if we falsely judge one another, we are not loving our neighbors. Amen? We are not loving our brothers and sisters. And then what is that essentially saying? That we ourselves are a judge. We speak evil against the law, James says. And we become a judge. Instead of a doer of the law, we become a judge. So that is to say, we elevate ourselves even above God's own law as though it doesn't apply to us. I don't have to love you. I don't have to love my neighbor. I will just judge for myself, and I deem you unworthy, unlovable. I deem you worthy of talking smack and slanderizing and gossiping about, right? That's essentially what we're doing. That's what James says we do when we speak evil against a brother or sister, We make ourselves the judge, and we elevate ourselves above the royal law of love. And instead of being a doer of the law, we are somehow thinking that the law is under us and that we don't have to obey it. We become a judge, not a doer. Well, Paul kind of speaks to this a little bit in Romans 14, dealing with the issue of, um, you know, food... That was a problem in the early church. At times, you know, they came out of pagan idolatry, and in this idolatry, people would sacrifice meat to idols. They would sac- and in fact, that still happens today. There was this re- in Tennessee. I lived in this little town in Tennessee, and uh, there was a, a Thai restaurant, and I, I knew a young lady that worked there, and they wanted to have a real authentic. Thanksgiving, so they asked her to make a turkey, and they had a party, and she brought the turkey, and then they set it outside in front of their little, their little statue, their little God, 
And wouldn't you know it, man, business was just booming. I mean, God, their, their God was blessing their business because they sacrificed this little turkey to their, to their God. I say that facetiously, but that's what they thought. Now, could you imagine sitting down and eating that turkey? I mean, I would feel kind of weird, weird about that, you know? And people in the New Testament, that's exactly what it was like. They're like, I don't want to eat that. I mean, that, that could have been sacrificed to a, a false god, and that, you know, I don't, I don't like that. And there's some people who are like, you know what, there is no god but our god. I'm going to eat that steak, all right? And that, this was a real issue in the church. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Tell it. Tell it. But this was an issue in the church, and Paul would address this in um, chapter 14, verse 1. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he can eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And that is a true statement. You only eat vegetables, you will be weak. Yeah, okay. Verse 3. I wouldn't have done well in this. I would have been, I would have, uh, I would have been the one eating the steak and get, causing all kinds of ruckus, talking smack. Can you believe those people don't even eat? He probably ain't even saved. All right, verse 3. Let, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is better for his own master that he stands or falls. It is better before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So the point Paul is making here is that it's not your place to judge somebody else. So you had the people who, who were going to eat the meat anyways, and then the people who wouldn't eat the meat were like, you sinner, I can't believe you. Don't you know that meat was probably... Uh, you know, given to idols and you're going to eat it. And Paul's saying, look, y'all need to stop passing judgment on each other. You don't know each other's heart. And guess what? You answer to the Lord. I answer to the Lord. You don't answer to me and I don't answer to you. Okay? God is quite capable of judging. Amen? He doesn't need my help. And he certainly doesn't need yours. And so it's to the Lord that we stand or fall. And he is able to make us stand. Well, that kind of leads us into our third point here. When we slander, we sin against God as the righteous judge. It's His place. And see, God's judgment is just because He is the perfect and righteous judge. He is the only one qualified to judge. And so He's quite capable. We are not. We end up falsely judging and attacking people's motives and character, but not with God. And so it says in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and to destroy. So God alone has the right to judge. You got that? Amen. He always judges rightly. Why? Because He alone is the discerner of the hearts. He knows what's going on in our hearts. Now that can be a terrifying thing if our hearts are far from Him. If we are still in our sin and separated from God, God knows everything about us. Everything we've ever thought, everything we've ever said, everything that we've ever done, every righteous thing that we've failed to do, God knows it all. And nothing will be hidden from Him on the day of judgment. We'll have to give an account for every single thing that we did against Him. 
Now, if we are in Christ, and all of that has been forgiven us, past, present, and future, we can rejoice. And I actually find great freedom in the fact that God knows everything about me because I, don't, I, I can't hide why try. I can't pretend to be something else, so why try? I can be honest with God. I can be real. When I'm struggling, I can tell Him so. When I'm lacking in faith, I can be real with Him about that. I can come to Him and be honest because I know I'm forgiven. I know I'm loved in Christ. I know that Jesus has paid it all, and God is my Father, and He's patient, and He's working with me. God knows the heart. He alone knows the heart. And so, as a result, He can discipline perfectly. Now, that's kind of the theme in Hebrews chapter 12. It talks about a loving father will discipline his children. Amen? If you don't, if, if, if a father doesn't love his kids, then he'll just let them get away with whatever. That's what the Bible says. Now, it says God is a perfect heavenly father. He disciplines perfectly. He's never unjust. He never disciplines too hard, too light. He knows everything perfectly. He measures everything perfectly. He always judges and disciplines perfectly. But we don't have that capacity, so we don't judge perfectly. We are imperfect in that. And not only are we not able to discern other people's hearts, we can't even judge our own hearts. We can't even discern our own hearts. We are deceived by our own hearts. And that, therein lies the issue. So we assess a situation. We assess somebody else's motives. But the reality is it's a false assessment so often because of the sinfulness in our own hearts. We can't even see clearly enough to make a judgment. So why try? And this is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1, he says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now listen to this. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying that I'm not, it doesn't, you know, wreck my life. I'm not going to lose any sleep if you judge me. He said, I don't even, but I don't even judge myself. He's like, I can't rightly judge myself. I, I think I'm okay. He says, you know, but the reality is... Um, I am thereby not acquitted. He's like, I'm not even capable of judging myself. I might think I'm okay and not realize I'm, I'm in trouble. God is the righteous judge. That's what he says in verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment for the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. I can't even rightly judge myself. Because I'm blind, and my heart is wicked, and I will judge falsely and assess falsely. There's one qualified judge, and it's Jesus, and we will stand before Him, and we'll either be condemned or commended by the judge. And so, if you have trusted Christ for salvation, and He is your Lord and Savior, then there will be commendation. There will be reward. Amen? We stand because of His merits. But that's the judge that we need to be concerned about. We don't need to be worried about each other so much. You know, um, this 
inability to assess even our own hearts. It's, it's uh, well, let me get, go to the next point, and I'll deal with that. So, fourth and final point. When we slander, we go against that which is reasonable and biblical. If we were just going to reason through this and think logically, it makes no sense that we would try to be the judge. It makes no sense that we would try to assume or assess motive or slander or defame, obviously, because the reality is, who gives us the right? We don't have the right to judge, slander, or defame because we're guilty. We're guilty. I mean, praise God that we're innocent in His eyes because of what Christ has done, but on an earthly plane, we have all fallen short. We all fall short. Who, who can stand and judge another? And I remember getting hit by the, like, one time. I worked in a machine shop in Tennessee, and we would machine these little metal parts, very tiny little intricate parts that would go in, like, jet, jet engines or assault rifles or motorcycles, things like that. And uh, we'd take these long bars of steel, and it would feed this bar into the machine, and then, uh, you know, there'd be about that much of the bar left over. We'd call that a, a remnant, Right. And we would just have boxes and boxes of these remnants. And some of them were fat and some of them were very skinny. And the skinny ones made for like throwing knives, essentially. And so I worked on night shift. There was just a few of us in there. And we would take these big cardboard boxes and put it on a forklift and raise it high up into the, the air. And we would get on the other side of the warehouse and we would be throwing these things like target practice across the warehouse at the boxes, okay? So, anyways, I come into work one evening. My shift is about to start. My employer had some gripe, something that he wanted to confront me about, some very minor thing. And uh, I don't even think that it was right. I, thought he, I think he was incorrect in his assessment, but I got so mad when he said that to me. I was like, who, man, what, in the, who do you think you are? And then I thought, wait a second, I am so much worse than he even knows. Like, what he's talking about is nothing compared to what's actually going on here in the middle of the night. And I was like, oh, man, I just got hit with this. You know what? And that has always stuck with me. If you... I cannot defend myself because the reality is whatever it is you got against me, I'm worse than you even think I am. <laughs> the reality is. And so who am I to defend myself and who am I to cast judgment? It just makes no sense. Let's leave it to the one who judges righteously. Let's leave it to the one who judges justly, the Almighty. Now, there's a reason why, you know, we shouldn't judge and we shouldn't fight back. The reality is our Lord and Savior, the only truly innocent one, was falsely judged. Remember that? He was falsely judged. He was falsely accused. He was falsely condemned. And that's, that's what you get in, so often in the courtroom of wicked men. But he didn't fight back at all. He was falsely judged. He didn't revile. He didn't defend. He didn't fight back. But you know what? More than that, he was judged by God Almighty on the cursed tree for our wickedness. He was judged to death on the cross for us, our Savior was. So who are we? Who are we to then turn around and slander and malign and defame one another? If we have been forgiven such an immense debt at the cross of Jesus Christ, if God has paid such an amazing price that He would judge His own Son 
and Jesus would suffer for us, who are we to stand in judgment of anyone else? Who are we to slander somebody else? Who are we to uh, falsely assume and accuse a brother or sister's motives? Who are we to turn around and talk smack about somebody else? How dare we? We best not ever. Amen? We have received mercy and grace upon grace and love and abundance. And that's what we ought to be marked by. So, it's subtle. We don't always realize we're doing it. But just watch out for that. You'll be surprised. You find yourself saying something about someone else. That just is, Was that even necessary? Was that even helpful? What was the purpose of that? Did it make you feel good to say it? How would you feel if they heard that? What then? How would they respond to that? You know, these are, we may not think through that, but I would be willing to say that this stuff comes out of our hearts and our mouths way more than we realize. And so James says, may it never be. It must not be in the church of God. It must not be. We are not to assume, accuse, judge, attack, slander. It must not be. Amen? And so let me pray for us. Father, would you help us to guard our mouths? And it really is a matter of the heart. Lord, would you purify and cleanse our hearts? that we would not, that wouldn't be our first thing, that we would assume the best. What 1 Corinthians says, love hopes all things, believes all things, that we would be those people who give the benefit of the doubt to our brothers and sisters. Lord, thank you that you have judged our sin on our Savior Jesus, and you have declared us innocent and righteous in Him. So, Father, far be it from us to ever condemn or accuse or slander or mock or gossip anything that is uh, not of you, anything that doesn't reflect Christ, anything that doesn't give you glory, anything that doesn't build up the body of Christ. May our speech reflect that of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. May it honor Him. May it honor you. And Lord, just in the quietness of this room, if there's anybody here today who knows that their sin has not been accounted for yet, and that one day they're going to have to give an account before the righteous judge who does judge perfectly and justly, who does just, uh, judge severely, because our sin is a severe offense against a holy God. But you know what? The good news stands the good news is extended here today that if we would trust Jesus, if we would cast all of our sin upon Him, if we would cast all of our good works even upon Him and, and go to Him for forgiveness, if we confess in our, if we believe in our hearts that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's the Lord, that He died for us and that you raised him again from the grave. If we believe that in our heart and confess that with our mouths, that we'll be saved. Saved from condemnation. Saved from guilt and sin. That we would be born again. That you would give us a brand new heart. And that we would know you as a loving Heavenly Father. No longer as a judge, but as a Father. That invitation is open today in this room, for anyone who would believe on Jesus Christ and trust Him for salvation, anyone who would call upon 
his name today. If that's you, just know that. Right now, in the quietness of your own heart, you can confess that to the Lord Jesus. You can call upon his name and be saved. Today is the day of salvation. There will be a day when it's too late. You never know. You never know when this is the end, when God's going to take you. Today is the day. So, Father, we praise you. We love you. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. May God bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up your countenance and give you peace. May God go before you this week. May he provide for all of your needs according to his riches and grace. May he fill you with his spirit. May he use you for his glory. And may your speech glorify him, reflect his goodness, and build up those around you. In Jesus' name, amen.